Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we've got an extra earful for you because we're talking about the sounds of the past. What? Sounds of the past. Now, we briefly covered a couple of ancient musical instruments in our listener questions episode last week, and we've talked about some sounds of the past before, but... This week, we're going beyond just instrumental music. What did the past sound like? How can we find out? And obviously, most ancient sounds have never been recorded, at least not in the tape-recorded sense. And the closest thing we have to that is musical notation. Okay, you said most. What? Most haven't been recorded? Have some been recorded in the tape-recorded sense? Well, no. Oh, man. Well, I mean... After the I fact, mean, I guess and we'll, we'll from get to space that. are pretty ancient. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, this got a lot deeper than I was intending. Uh, right, right out of the, the gate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you need to go lay down for a minute? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I. Um, ancient mm-hmm. sounds, we're going to talk about some ancient sounds that have sort of been resurrected and then recorded, which I think when I wrote that sentence is what I meant. So at the time that they were originally produced, ancient sounds have not been recorded. Does that suit you? Yes. Excellent. So the closest thing we have to that is musical notation, as in a system of writing that depicts music. So the earliest form of musical notation can be found in a cuneiform tablet that was created at Nippur in Babylonia, today's Iraq, in about 1400 BCE. The tablet represents fragmentary instructions for performing music, and it it says that the music was composed in harmonies of thirds, and it was written using a diatonic scale. So I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. Okay, hello. It's future Anna, here to explain to you, with the help of my trusty keyboard, the diatonic scale. So, a diatonic scale is uh, a way of progressing from one note to the same note, one octave higher, through a pattern of whole and half steps. So, here's what a whole step sounds like. And here's what a half step sounds like. So you can put those whole and half steps together in different patterns to create different types of scales. The most common scales that we use in Western music today are the major and minor scales. So here's what a major scale sounds like. Now, if I were to throw in a couple of half steps where there were whole steps, I would create a minor scale like this. 
there are lots and lots of different ways that you can change up the patterns of whole and half notes to create different feels for your music. And so there are tons of different scales that are used in both Western and Eastern musical traditions. And so if you want to learn more about those, check out our show notes where we'll have a link to a page that goes over musical scales from all over the world. Okay, back to the show. Okay. Uh, a tablet from about 200 years later shows a more developed scale and refers to the tuning of the strings of a lyre. So there was a tuning guide. So you can figure out uh, how to make the lyre tuned so that it, when you play these bits and pieces of music, it should sound the way it sounded back when that and music just, was written. Just as a point of clarity, you are saying liar, L-Y-R-E, not L-I-A-R. Yes, I'm not, I'm not calling you a liar. Yeah, so yes. it's a stringed yeah. instrument. It's kind of a small U-shaped harp. Ancient Greek musical notation was in use from at least the 6th century BCE until approximately the 4th century CE. Several complete compositions and fragments of compositions using this notation survive. So that consists of symbols placed above text syllables. So the text would be written out and little marks would be placed on it. And in fact, this is exactly how trope marks are written in the text of the Torah, um, the Hebrew biblical text. And it, the little notes signify little phrases of music that you use to help memorize that text. Because often mm, if mm -hmm. something is a little musical snippet, it's easier to fix in your memory than just a line of text. Um, the oldest known complete Greek composition is the Seculos epitaph, which has been variously dated between the 2nd century BCE to the 2nd century CE. So okay. 400 years of maybe. So I found a link to, um, well, it's on the Wikipedia page for the epitaph, but it has a link to an audio clip of someone singing the piece. And it's, it's really pretty. And it, it might be accurate. I don't know. Hello, it's future Anna again. I'm going to drop in a snippet of the Seculos epitaph here being sung by the owner of a SoundCloud page called Weekends. So thanks, Weekends. There is recorded Byzantine music notation, but a lot of it seems to be the subject of a lot of debate, and nobody can agree on how the scales would have sounded. So, there's that. <laughs> okay. Over in the over in the east, the first uh, musical east of us, me. Okay. Everything is in relation to me. Okay. Over in we the could, east oh, of we could me. We call that Asia. Yes. <laughs> we could. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's in Asia. So over in Asia, the first musical notation system that I could find was in India, where a scholar named Pingala used short and long marks to denote meter in Sanskrit poetry around 200 BCE. That's not quite music, I know, but poetry and meter are something we're going to come back to. So Ugh, put sure a poetic are. little pin in that. <laughs> in the 1400s CE, there was another system called Jungganbo. I probably butchered that. I'm sorry. And it was developed in Korea. 
So once we hit the Middle Ages in Europe, we get plenty of musical notation for the chants that accompanied religious services, and from that point on, Western music becomes fairly standardized and uses the solfege scale that you're probably familiar with if you have a music background or if you've watched The Sound of Music. It's the group of scales that go do, re, mi. Etc. What if I'm neither of those things? Well, I am in neither of those categories. Personally, (laughs) you've not you've not seen the sound of music. No. Wow, interesting. Um, So solfege, the name solfege just refers to the first couple syllables of uh, Latin words of a prayer. I think is what I remember from music theory. So it's the scale, like the the most familiar major scale is just the one that goes do re mi fa sol la ti do, and then. The two do's, do, do, that's an octave. So they are the same note. They have the same pitch, but they one is higher than the other. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> moving from one thing I don't understand to another, physics. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to read to you from a piece in The New Yorker from a few years ago. Ahem. <clears throat> In early 2000, south of Oakland, California, a physicist stuck in traffic was listening to the radio. He heard Mickey Hart, a drummer (laughs) for the Grateful Dead. NPR opening I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah. He heard Mickey Hart, a drummer for the Grateful Dead, say that the archives of the world's aboriginal musics were deteriorating and needed attention. The bulk of the archives had been assembled between 1890 and 1940 by ethnographers using antique devices that recorded mainly on wax cylinders and aluminum discs. Many of the recordings had not been played for a number of years and had grown so fragile that the pressure of a stylus might destroy them. Anything you can embed sound in, you can scratch, crease, crumble, bend, break, tear, warp, or melt. Oil and dust and dirt get in the path of a stylus and deepen, widen, or distort a groove, making the stylus skip. Something, possibly mold, attacks the grooves on wax cylinders, leaving gaps that sound as if someone were banging a drum. (laughs) On... On cylinders of Native American music, which typically features singing and chanting, this sometimes sounds like a phantom accompaniment. Wax cylinders, ghost drums. Wax cylinders were meant for businessmen to dictate letters on. After a letter had been typed, the cylinder was scraped clean with a tool the manufacturer supplied so that another letter could be dictated until the cylinder was used up. No one regarded the cylinders as permanent, and permanence wasn't what the ethnologists sought. They wanted a version to transcribe. They wanted to read the text more than hear it. The physicist, whose name is Carl Haber, works at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory in Berkeley, California. There are essentially two kinds of physicists, experimental and theoretical. Experimental physicists test the ideas of theoretical physicists. Sometimes they observe peculiarities that theoretical physicists then name and explain. Haber is an experimental physicist. Haber regards himself as an instrument builder, that is, as someone who, after considering what device an experiment requires, designs the device and makes it or sees to its being made by a custom shop. In past work at CERN, uh, working on discovering the Higgs boson, no biggie, he had used a machine called a smart scope, which, quote, photographs the detectors in microscopic detail, then analyzes the images and the placement over and over again, end quote. He says, this type of measuring is called optical metrology. The smart scope had worked so well that Haber was drawing sketches and writing notes for new ways to use it. He said, quote, I wondered, could we somehow use optical metrology in some brute force way to have the images interpreted as a sound? End quote. Haber went to Down Home Music Store in El Cerrito and bought a couple of 78s. 
being Goodnight Irene by The Weavers and Whispering by Les Paul. The records were made from shellac, which is brittle. One of his colleagues dropped Whispering and it broke. Wow. A a colleague scanned the groove of Goodnight Irene as it unfolded over several of the record's revolutions. Each revolution took close to 40 minutes to complete. In all, he scanned about 20 seconds of music. A computer, following the path of the groove as if it were a stylus, converted the images to music. That's so cool. Yeah, well, it's about to get cooler because the author goes on to say, Silence is imaginary. Because the world never stops making noise. A sound is a disruption of the air, and it doesn't so much die as recede until it subsides beneath the level of the world's random noise and can no longer be recovered, like a face that is lost in a crowd. See, this is, this is what, this is, this is what you get from the New Yorker. Yeah, that's true. They don't call themselves the best writing around for nothing. Do they call themselves that? I think that I think I saw that. All right, I'd believe it. It's pretty good writing. <laughs> yeah. Um. In past times, oh, the article, the best writing round goes on to say, in past <laughs> times, people sometimes thought that all sounds that ever existed were still present, hovering like ghosts. Oh, can you imagine? Uh, I can. I hate that. Um, uh, Guglielmo Marconi, who sent the first radio message in 1902, believed that with a microphone that was sufficiently sensitive, he could hear Jesus delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And in 1925, a writer for the Washington Post speculated that a radio was capable of broadcasting the voices of the dead. A radio transmits vibrations, he wrote, and the voices of the dead, quote, simply vibrate at a lower rate. Well, so Washington Post Democracy may die in darkness, but the dead die in silence. But silence doesn't exist. Does democracy? Oh, I don't know about that. Let's not talk politics. I don't know. (sighs) Except for an echo, only a sound that has been recorded can be heard again. A recording is a pattern of sound waves embedded in a medium. A person speaks, the sound moves a diaphragm, the diaphragm stirs a stylus, and the stylus traces a pattern analogous to the sound, an analog recording. A digital recording converts the pattern of the waves into numbers. Among audio preservationists, the few people who search for antique sounds and try to play them are some called are sometimes called archaeophonists. Their field is archaeophony. The oldest sound archaeophonists have recovered is a proofreader of medical texts singing a folk song in Paris in April of 1860. As far as anyone knows, the proofreader, whose name was Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville, Scott de Martinville, (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Scott, um, recorded sound before anyone else did. Scott embedded embedded his voice in soot on a piece of paper. He never heard it. The means for playing back sound weren't invented until 1877 when Thomas Edison recorded himself on tinfoil. So you thought that was good. You should read the rest of the article, which I am including in the show notes. Yeah, it's all really incredible. Just thinking about how sound gets physically recorded in an analog recording and then can be played back. It makes my brain hurt if I think about it too hard. It's not that difficult. It's not 
that complex. It just, for some reason, is a phenomenon that I can't quite wrap my head around. But what can you wrap your head around? I can sure wrap my head around the fine concept of capitalism. Oh. Let's have some ads. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And we're back. And I have some stories about more ways that people are trying to bring dead sounds back to life. So this is from a piece in the New York Times from 2016. Peter Holmes, a 76-year-old former aircraft engineer, was standing in his tidy living room in North London recently, holding a Scandinavian war horn more than four feet long. When asked how the instrument, known as a lure, is played, he said, quote, I've no idea. No one's played it for 3,000 years, end quote. With that, Mr. Holmes put the lure to his lips and blew. Rather than an angry bellow that might transport a listener to, to a lonely fjord among Viking warriors, it sounded more like a bugle played by someone with a lisp. Mr. Holmes, an expert on ancient music, built the lure and other long-forgotten instruments at the University of Middlesex's engineering department, where he is a designer in residence and in his cluttered garden shed. He also did building in his cluttered garden shed. What a weird sentence. He is also a central figure in the European Music Archaeology Project, or EMAP, a 4 million euro, about 4.6 million American dollars, effort started in 2013 to recreate the sounds of the ancient world. The project unveiled the results of its work in 2016. John Kenny, a trombonist from Birmingham, England, who also plays the Carnix, an Iron Age horn, said that ancient instruments were important because they offered a different perspective on the past. Quote, from uh, John Kenny. I've witnessed the most extraordinary skills used to reconstruct buildings, clothes, and language, but those don't put you into the imaginative world people used to live in, he said, end quote. Only music does that. Okay, now, end quote. <laughs> Wait, no, there's more quote. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> if, you, if you reconstruct a sword, no one apart from a homicidal maniac could use it for the purpose intended, but reconstruct an instrument and anyone can experience it. Okay, now, end quote. <laughs> The project, half-funded by the European Union, with the rest coming from an assortment of institutions and state agencies, covers the Paleolithic era to around CE 1000 and the Dark Ages. So also the Middle Ages. Same, same. 
calling on the skills of archaeologists, philologists, acousticians, metal workers, and others, it has brought back to life instruments ranging from ancient bagpipes to 30,000-year-old vulture bone flutes, although some say that these are merely vulture bones that some poor animal chewed holes in. A carnyx towers six feet above the player and is topped by a serpent or boar's head with a mouth sometimes able to flap open and closed to mute the sound. The first reconstruction sounded like flatulence. Mr. Kenny said, quote, It wasn't a human instrument. It had no inner life, and I was sure that was because we didn't use the original techniques to make it or the original alloys. End quote. A second version, which, co- which cost 28,000 British pounds to make, which is about $40,000, and required a craftsman to hand hammer metal for 400 hours, fortunately soared. Mr. Kenny has been playing it ever since on a long-term loan from a charitable trust, even though, he said, he occasionally knocks the head off. Well, you would if you went through a door. Another EMAP member, Barnaby Brown of Cambridge, England, plays reconstructions of the Greco-Roman alos, a kind of double oboe played by sticking each half in a corner of the mouth. Uh, That's a silly description. A bit like using chopsticks to impersonate a walrus. Wait, isn't that one of the things that... um figrin dan and like his band what? played and the in the cantina in oh, star wars in, star, in a star war um yeah isn't it's that, basically like yes isn't it's, that what they were playing <laughs> it's pretty much two little flutes at once it's like two little not I'm the flutes that you play sideways sure yeah it's, it's pretty much an allos yeah um so the allos talking i'm gonna look this up <laughs> Unlike the Carnix, the Allos' music is only ever soulful and intimate. <laughs> Barnaby Brown said, It was the most popular instrument of the Greco-Roman world. You couldn't have a sacrifice without it. You couldn't have fun without it. You couldn't have a party, a wedding, a funeral. End quote. The Allos requires a technique called circular breathing. And when Mr. Brown plays it, his cheeks puff out and his eyes bulge. So circular breathing is when you inhale through your nose and you're you're You do this while you're playing. Uh, A lot of modern um, wind and brass instrument players do this. And you breathe in through your nose and you hold air kind of in your cheeks and you're puffing out air, but you're continually breathing and blowing out with your cheeks at the same time. So you can um, play continuously without having to go (gasps) and take a, a big breath. The goddess Athena was said to have invented the allos, but to have thrown it away when she realized how ghastly she looked playing it. Uh, Brown <laughs> Brown says, quote, it looks far worse than it is. The only thing that's hard about it is the breathing requires musculature in the lips. And right now I can only do it for about six minutes. In Greco-Roman times, they used to play all night and had to wear a leather strap called a forbea across the cheeks so they could keep going, he added. Um, and this is this part's pretty neat. Mr. Brown doesn't see musical archaeology as recreating the music of the past. Instead, he said, it is another way of creating new music for today. And he says, the reason I'm most excited by playing these instruments is I get to compose because the original music doesn't survive. We have a few bits of Greek music, but that's it. It's a complete fallacy when people say, you're hearing the music of the Stone Age. He continued, what rubbish? You're hearing the music of the person playing the instrument. Does that ruin it? No. It makes it even more thrilling, end quote. So we'll include um, some more links to recreations of various instruments. And this is what I was looking up, Amber, when I texted you that my my favorite medieval instrument is the sackbutt. 
<laughs> I had a, a game when I was a kid that was about the orchestra, and I forget it was like a matching game with illustrated cards, but it was the orchestra and then also some medieval and Renaissance instruments, and it included the sackbut. So I have been aware <laughs> of the sackbut for a very long time. Okay. Sackbut. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to talk about sackbut now, um, <laughs> but. Here's another story that uh, jumps off of Barnaby Brown's Adventures with the Alos, um, and it's from The Conversation. <laughs> and- A low-budget Harry Potter. Okay. Barnaby Brown's double flute. Um, and it's from The Conversation, and it touches on something that I'll talk about in greater at greater length towards the end of the show, but ahem, ahem. ancient Greek music has long posed a maddening enigma. See yeah. Barnaby Brown's comments before. Um, yes. Literary texts provide abundant and highly specific details about the notes, scales, effects, and instruments used. Despite this wealth of information, the sense and sound of ancient Greek music has proved incredibly elusive. This is because the terms and notions found in ancient sources, mode, inharmonic, diesis, and so on, are complicated and unfamiliar. The musical texts are scarce and fragmentary. The situation has changed largely because over the past few years, some very well-preserved alloy have been reconstructed by expert technicians such as Robin Howell and the researchers associated with the European Music Archaeology Project. EMAP. Um, EMAP. Central to ancient song was its rhythms, and the rhythms of ancient Greek music can be derived from the meters of the poetry. Um, These were based strictly on the durations of syllables of words, which create patterns of long and short elements. While there are no tempo indications for ancient songs, it's often clear whether a meter should be sung fast or slow. Until the invention of mechanical chronometers, tempo was in any case not fixed and was bound to vary between performances. Setting an appropriate tempo is essential if music is to sound right. Um, an analysis of a parchment scrap known as the Orestes Fragment, uh, which is a piece of Euripides' play Orestes, not lyrics to the A Perfect Circle song, um, <clears throat> has led to some unique insights. First, it seems that elements of the score clearly indicate word painting, the imitation of the meaning of words by the shape of the melodic line. We find a falling cadence set to the word lament and a large upward interval leap accompanying the words leaps up. Second, a researcher showed that if quarter tones functioned as passing notes, that's in quotes, the composition was in fact tonal. Um, And I'll talk about tonality in a minute. Um, So the choral accompaniment to plays would have moved at quite a brisk pace and would have had the half note steps that might tell movie score listening ears that the scene is somewhere eastern. Yeah, so um, we can link to the page that this comes from, and it has a couple of video clips and some little sound bites, and you'll see what we mean if you listen to those. Um, And now, a brief rundown of some of the world's oldest musical instruments from oldest.org. That sounds... Totes legit. Reputable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I double-checked. I mean, these are all real things, just... Oldest.org. Oldest.org. Put them in in list form. (laughs) Slash music. Okay. So. Wow, they really are. It does what it says on the tin on this website. Yeah, it really does. Oh, sister sites, largest.org and rarest.org. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
Next episode. Big things. <laughs> okay. Let me let me tell you about some old instruments. So um, the first one on this list, which is in not really any particular order, but uh, the pair of it's trumpets. Mostorderly.org. It's true. It's just oldest. I think it goes from youngest to oldest. We'll see. Um, so the first one is a pair of trumpets from Pharaoh Tutankhamun's tomb are believed to be the oldest playable trumpets in the world. There's a qualifier. Playable. These trumpets are the only ones that have survived from ancient Egypt and are over 3,000 years old. They were discovered, along with the rest of King Tut's tomb, in 1922 by archaeologist Howard Carter. Both trumpets feature fine engravings with decorative images of the god Rahorakti, Ta, and Amun. In 1939, the trumpets were played before a live audience, and the performance was broadcast internationally through BBC Radio. Since their discovery, there have been claims that the trumpets have the power to summon war. People have connected the what? British entering... Yeah, well, it's not, not legit claims, just claims. People have connected the British entering World War II with the trumpets because the war in Europe started five months after the BBC broadcast. So that someone, is the most, like ethnocentric thing I've ever heard. <laughs> we found this and then a war happened. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> okay, next. Does not care. No, he did. Okay. So next we have the bone flutes discovered at the Jiahu archaeological site in China, modern day China. Uh, these are the oldest known musical instruments from China. These are 33 flutes in various states of preservation, and about 20 of the flutes are intact. The rest are broken or fragmented. Or other synonyms. <laughs> oh, broken or fragmented. Um, shattered. Chipped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, Indisposed. Yep, well, uh, feeling poorly. Six of the flutes are complete and are considered and to be the... Yes. And, Functional. Uh, intact. No, we used intact. Dang. Discreet. Okay. Six of the flutes are complete and are considered to be the oldest playable multi-note musical instruments ever found. All right. Qualifiers on qualifiers on qualifiers. The flutes vary in size and have five, six, seven, or eight holes, which is great because then you can go five, six, seven, eight. Da, 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 da. Okay. Researchers have played the best preserved flute and have uploaded audio recordings, which we will link to, that showcase musical signs that are thousands of years old. Tonal analysis revealed that the seven-hold flute produces notes similar to the fam familiar Western eight-note scale that begins with do-re-mi. Uh, number three. Possibly my personal favorite. The bull roarer is what? a ritual... Yeah. It's a ritual, maybe, musical instrument used by many ancient and current cultures around the world. Historically, it was used for communicating over long distances. The oldest known example of a bull roarer was found in Ukraine, dating back to the Paleolithic period around 18,000 BCE. In addition to the oldest bull roarer from Ukraine, archaeologists have uncovered ancient ones in other parts of Europe, Asia, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, Australia, and the Americas. So it's basically... Picture this in your heads. It's basically a short, flat panel of wood that's shaped like an elongated teardrop, and it's attached to a long cord with a hole through the wider end. So you, it's a very long cord, and you whip that cord around your head, and the wooden part spins as you twirl it and vibrates, and it makes this really unearthly, loud, low buzz. 
Um, it's in a scene in one of the Crocodile Dundee movies, which is how I know what it sounds like. But I'm sure there are also clips on YouTube that we will link to in our show notes. And in fact, listeners, we've got a clip of one right here. Here is a bull roarer from Slovenia. And then finally, most of the very, very oldest known instruments are bone flutes. So there are examples from Isteritz in southwestern France, Hollefels and Gleisenklosterle in Germany, which we touched on in our listener episode, and Divyababa in Slovenia, which that one's made from a cave bear femur, which first of all is a large flute and also very metal. So those are all somewhere between 25 and 40,000 years old. So if humans were making and playing musical instruments by then, then there's a really good chance that instrumental music is far older and vocal music is probably even older than that. But Amber, do you know what never gets old? The need for money. Ads. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. So, Anna... You listed, yes. you named off some old instruments, but that list aged fails decrepit to fails to include the oldest instrument of all. Geriatric? The human voice. Mm. So what did singing in the ancient past sound like? And how can we recreate it? Can we recreate it at all? In the case of classical Greek songs, maybe. Oh. Uh. So, yeah. Specifically like the the words to songs. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. So over the years, several brave philologists have taken up the cause of figuring out what Homer sounded like. Um, now, before you like put your tweet down, I'm not saying <laughs> that Homer was some guy who wrote his epic poetry and performed it personally, like reading it off his phone at open mic nights or something. Like the Homeric tradition is thought to be much more than one guy. And it's more of a literary tradition that spanned centuries before and probably after um, whenever some Homer might have lived. Um, And it was finally (laughs) written down sometime around the 8th century BCE. Thanks for covering Um, our bases. Yeah, yeah. To Twitter! (laughs) And also since it's, there probably were as many versions as there were people performing it, um, if scribes are writing it down, if they're transcribing it while it's being performed, 
there are several versions of it, several written versions of it. And there's a project yeah. dedicated to rounding up those versions of the Homeric epics called the Homer Multitext Project. And I'll link to it in the show notes because it's really gorgeous. Um, hmm. A lot of photos of like really beautiful manuscripts. Um, <laughs> even then, it wasn't a matter of rote recitation for the bards that spat Homeric fire. Every performance would be slightly different and relied on mnemonic devices and repetition of certain lines to keep things moving. All while they jammed a four string, jammed on a four string lyre called a formix. So, what? How you said that having little like oh musical yeah trope marks cues, yeah yeah helps mm-hmm. to keep you remembering things. Um, it's interesting about our- the repeated lines though. That's kind of like having a chorus in a song. Yeah. And so the the things with like epithets, when you talk about like the ways that you describe um, the time of day or the ways that you describe like the gods and there will be um, like whole phrases in Homer where is, is that it's like just, wine dark sea? Yeah. So, yeah, the epithet would be like, you know, wily Odysseus and um, uh, Athena. Like think Athena of, with think her of Athena. Like flashing eyes, I think, is hers. Yeah. Um, and so you have you have those, but you also have whole um, phrases that are repeated where it'll mm-hmm. it'll be talking about like passage of time or how you would describe a landscape or something. And it makes it way easier when you're a student where you're just like, oh, thank God. But it also <laughs> is something that you can just sort of like get back in the rhythm of it. Um, and that's something that makes it easier to perform orally. Right. Um, and so they also would have their their little musical, uh, the, the musical performances. Twangy, uh, twang, twang, twang. Played on the formings. And mm-hmm. so like all good experimental types, we've got some, some folks that have performed it, including um, your Danik of the University of Vienna and Stefan Hagel of the Austrian Academy of Sciences, they worked on recreating sort of the vibe of a Homeric oh performance. Um, and so they said that it, it's more like an improv game. So the like the Homeric performer would uh, improvise, quote, the melody at the same time as he improvised his text, which was unique in every performance. Oh, yeah, it's a poetry quote. slam. Yeah, so he's he's playing. Um, yeah, so let's listen to the sound of singing Homer. section is a recreation of lines 267 to 366 of book eight of the odyssey um which is the homeric bard talking about another bard uh, demodocus who's singing about the illicit love of Ares and aphrodite 
Oh. Yeah. Um, the other thing about ancient Greek is that it's a tonal language, meaning that putting stress on a syllable is not a matter of emphasis or volume like in English, so much as it is a pitch of one's voice in one syllable relative to the others around it. You can go high or low in register tones. So, okay, sorry, I should have. You can go high or low in register tones or contour tones like rising falling bouncing or even <laughs> or even being even in tone um and then it gets more complicated from there and i am going to include a link to a youtube video that like plays it out and gives you examples from um various languages that are spoken today well i hope so there's the more case, bouncing because that was great <laughs> in the case of well that's the circumflex um in the case yeah. of Greek poetry the poems sing for themselves so um, i'll include for y'all um, a new yorker another new yorker piece unpacking how late classicist stephen g dates went about reconstructing and recording a performance of the only poem we have in its complete form from sappho the most famous greek lyric poet and absolute must read for your sad girl fall one of my many shortcomings as a classic student was an inability to understand or follow meter and poetry and that was without accounting for tones it's somewhat comforting to know that even in the way way back greek performers occasionally flubbed it up too that same new yorker piece also includes this embarrassing anecdote quote and where the voice went up and down made all the difference. In the late 400 BC, during a performance of a play by Euripides, an actor created a fiasco by pitching the last syllable of the word Galen as an up and then down instead of as a simple up. As a result, so, the Galen. Galen. As a result mm -hmm. of that one literally false note, a line that was supposed to mean after the storm, I see a calm once more ended up as after the storm, I see a weasel once more. <laughs> and the audience collapsed into laughter <laughs> and the tragedy became farce. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. The weasel. The storm is over. Take us on home, Anna. I will. So to finish up this week's episode... I just wanted to briefly mention a story I came across while researching. It is only tangentially related to our topic, but it is just so fascinating and delightful that I wanted to share. And it was posted on the website New Scientist. Ahem. Taking a, a page out of your book, Amber. The pre-reading ahem. Sometimes when you travel, you still betray where you came from when you speak. The same thing seems to apply to humpback whales. Features of their song can reveal where they originally came from. What's more, when whales travel, their songs change as they pick up new tunes from whales they meet that have come from different regions. The sharing of whale song is a kind of cultural transmission that can give clues about where a whale has traveled on its migration and where it started out. A research team led by Ellen Garland at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland recorded the songs of humpback whales passing near the Kermatic Islands in the South Pacific during September and October of 2015. They also recorded whale songs at spots where whales congregate to feed and breed across the western and central South Pacific and around eastern and western Australia. The team broke down each song into units, like notes, that build together to make a phrase and several phrases that repeat to form a theme. A few themes are sung in a set in order to form a song. They found three song types from 52 whales. Song type 1 was dominant in the Central Pacific, including the Cook Islands and French Polynesia. Song type 2 was most common in the West, including New Caledonia, Tonga, and Niue. 
and song type 3 was only recorded in the waters near eastern Australia. Then, they compared these songs to those of the whales near, near the Kermatic Islands, a migratory stopover. Here, they found two distinct versions of song type 1, which they've called 1A and 1B. These songs can morph as whales pass them along, adding a riff or a few notes. So they do whale jazz. Aww. Ooh. Based on the percentage of similarity between the recordings, the team could then pinpoint where the whales at the Kermatic Islands originated from. Isn't that nice? It's very nice. Aww. Yeah, and uh, it makes me wonder, um, you know, because bird song is very similar in that it's entirely specific to species and um birds imprint on their songs very very early on if not if not in the egg because i think i read somewhere that birds sort of sing to their egg so that they can imprint on that species specific song but in any case i sort of wonder at what point in their development whale calves pick up songs and start singing you know is there like a little whale bar mitzvah or something that they they get to sing their song you're thinking of werewolf bar mitzvah are Yeah, and with that charming idea, listeners, we will sing you our farewells. But no, we won't. Um, Thank you, as always, for listening. And we'll be back with you next week in your ears via all the places you usually get your pods. And be sure to follow us on social media to see the images we post to go along with the show and to find all the cool archaeology and anthropology news we post on Facebook, where we are at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. That is all together on thedirtpod.com. You can email us about your favorite music at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we have a Patreon, and you can support us by throwing a couple bucks a month, and you'll get access to stuff like bonus episodes and video content and more bonus episodes. But we also (laughs) have merch. Yeah. So you can click the Dirt Shirts link on our website and get yourself a shirt or hoodie or mug or Or all of them. Um, And more designs are coming soon. Thank you all for listening. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.